Welcome everyone to another episode of Skadai Talks. For the ones of you who don't know me, hi, I'm Alex, and I'm one of the hosts of the podcast for the Student Center for Diversity, Advocacy and Inclusion, Skadai in short. But what is Skadai briefly before we get started? We are a student organization which aims at fostering a more inclusive and diverse environment for students and staff in higher education in the Netherlands. As today marks Transgender Day of Visibility, we will focus on the topic of exploring and dealing with a gender identity crisis as a student and what higher education should do to support their LGBTQIA students beyond performative actions. On this topic, we have Hawoon, our very special guest in this episode. You might remember them from our Purple Friday event in which Hawoon spoke about their experiences on a similar topic. So without further ado, Hawoon, would you like to introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? And why is this topic relevant and important to you? Um, yes, of course. Um, hello, listeners. As you probably have read from my intro, my name is Hawoon. It's it's not Huan or Wuhan because um, <laughs> this happens a lot with my name. <laughs> But I'm 23 years old. I'm a bachelor of psychology graduate from Ruh. I am transgender and non-binary person. I originally came from Indonesia, but I came to Groningen to study several years ago. And now I'm trying to integrate to the um, wonderful world of the Dutch society. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, we're we're going to dive deeper into uh, some of the topics that, that you mentioned, as you uh, eloquently put, integrating, quote unquote, into <laughs> Dutch society. Um, but yeah. Yeah, so to get us started, uh, and from what you feel comfortable, of course, sharing with us, what are some ups and downs in your journey in exploring and dealing with a gender identity crisis? Um, okay, so how do we start this? <laughs> um, I think I would uh, like to start with like a disclaimer, because um, it's important to, to keep in mind before we proceed that I am one trans and me person. And uh, it's important to keep in mind that we are not a monolith of, you know, people of the very same opinion. So other trans and NBs are welcome to have differing opinions. And these, um, anything else that I say in this podcast are based uh, on my experiences and opinions. Um, and two, I am trying to reclaim the word queer. So I'm using this term interchangeably to refer to LGBTQ things. For example, I would say that I'm a queer person to refer to the fact that I'm both trans and bi. Thirdly, it's also important to keep in mind that not all non-binary people identify as transgender. I myself do identify as transgender as well. And um, my subsequent experience will be influenced by those two things in this podcast. Also, another important note is that not a lot of trans people experience uh, gender dysphoria. Um, and in my case, I do. But I think it's also um, important to uh, note again that, you know, the, you know, you, when you hear stories about dysphoria and all of this, you know, the depression rates within trans people, sometimes people that do not understand conclude that, yeah, that's because they're trans. And, you know, this is not the case because um, some things that 
also usually evade the conversation uh, within the experience of transgender people is the experience of gender euphoria, right? This this idea and this this feeling that you get when you finally are seen as or feel consistent with the gender that you actually are. And it's a cause for celebration, which I think should be highlighted in this trans day of visibility. Thank you for this clarification. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's uh, it's uh, important to, uh, to keep that in mind before uh, we proceed. Um, ups and downs. It is. It is. It is a lot of ups and downs. <laughs> I would say. Um, I think when um, listeners hear, you know, the, the word uh, trans or the word non-binary, they would um, usually cis listeners would think like, oh. Uh, when did that happen? Um, <laughs> where where does it all uh, went <laughs> wrong? You know, <laughs> and um, I think it's uh, it's it's important to not make assumptions when it comes to you know other trans and non-binary people because people don't don't uh, just change their gender overnight you know people do this because of um a lot of um obstacles and a lot of uh, you know internalized transphobia or internalized queerphobia that they have to deal with throughout their life and they have to suppress this part of their identity and that was you know that was also my experience i think uh for me it's early on i realized that i um don't really fit in school because when I see other people, I feel like I see them through this 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 glass panel of interactions, and they are there. I, I acknowledge that they are there, and their experience of gender seems to be blurring with their reality. And I never felt like that. And at one point when, you know, when puberty happens, which was, you know, very weird for everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because for me, I had, I had a female puberty. So then I thought it's um, normal to feel unwelcome as yourself and in your body. And I secretly thought that all girls wish that they are not a girl. Um, <laughs> and then I would um, in middle school I would talk to my friends about this and they mentioned like well no I don't I don't feel like that so I feel like oh maybe I'm just you know one of those girls or something yeah <laughs> but um, that's not the case um, and I tried to like push away this this thoughts that keeps coming back of asking like what if I'm not who I thought I am, you know, and obviously, um, cause I grew up in Indonesia, it's a pretty conservative culture. Um, it is, you know, riddled with toxic patriarchal culture and they are, um, I grew up Muslim. So, um, the religion itself, as it manifested in Indonesia is very, um, very binary in that, in, in that culture, you know, like you, uh, if you are a woman, you wear specific things, you pray in a specific um, 
um, you have certain roles that you fit in, and this definitely plays into that understanding. And I was religious at the time, so I tried to convince myself, like, um, if if God really, you know, loves me, they wouldn't make me like this. So I, I, I tried so hard to be a woman. I tried so hard. <laughs> Um, didn't work out in the end. So, um, <laughs> and then um, the culture itself, right? Um, in terms of the language, because um, English is not my first language, obviously. And in Indonesian, the singular pronouns they, them, she, her, he, him are actually one word and only become gendered once translated to English. It just, you know, equally means everything in there. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, while I'm learning English, it's like that's actually a he and she and, and it. And while I was learning English, they didn't tell me that um, uh, they can actually be sing- singular, you know. So yeah. I only learned that in 2016, I think, when I uh, met another trans uh, non-binary person. And, 2016 um i was already aware of internet at the time and there were already you know discussions about gender and i was aware that some people use they them pronouns i thought it was weird because you know i learned english as, yeah as as if it's only just in the plural sense of the word yeah as in the plural sense of the, the, the word obviously yeah and um uh, my native language, they don't, you know, they, they, they don't separate this, uh, these words. Um, and yeah, in the same year, um, I moved abroad and I had to live by myself for the first time, right? I was truly completely by myself without other influences. And I had a lot of time to actually self-reflect for the first time in my life without any influence from my previous environment. <laughs> Um, and in some way, this causes some mental distress, but it also subsequently answers one of the biggest questions in my life that I had been dealing with for quite some time that I tried to, you know, keep worrying at a time. Um, and around like 2016, I fully accepted that I'm actually bi, which is kind of weird. To, to think of at the time and the, the because of the nature of attraction you don't actually uh, you know ask people to do a genetic test or ask <laughs> how they they went in their you know previous uh, years before they eventually met you or did uh, you know all of these things or how they identify or their pronouns you're just attracted to them at one point and there are some features that you find attractive so then because of this observations i started you know questioning my attraction and i question people's identity because you know is it like there's this 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 um confusion and understanding that like oh um if i'm attracted to this person am i actually you know attracted to this person or do i want to become this person yeah yeah and then um it just circled back to the the question that kept haunting me you know and i think at that moment i kind of already knew the answer but i didn't i refused to acknowledge that that was the answer 
And um, I think in 2019, I started seeking out um, a queer community online because I didn't really want it to be out in my daily life. Um, and I tried, you know, I tried different pronouns and I tried going by a different name. And then it just clicked. <laughs> and then I was like, oh. Oh, and then you were like, okay, this is it. Yeah. I this was makes like, sense. Oh, yeah, this makes sense. And I didn't I didn't realize how long it actually takes me to get to that point in life. And it just, you know, all of these things that I have to sacrifice, all of this uh, uh, life experience just kind of flashes before me. You know, I just keep thinking like, oh, I kind of wasted a huge part of my life lying to myself and now i'm you know i'm i'm free in that sense but i also lost a lot of heart um of, yeah. of my that's in the past but yeah you, you trade your own ha- happiness for other things yeah but it's also what you're saying like that also at some point you didn't have the resources in terms of the language and the resources to describe everything that you were regardless feeling inside and then yeah um, at some point when you find those tools and you're like okay this actually makes sense but uh as you said coming from more conservative community very patriarchal very binary environment and it and not having the information at your disposal um as you said like 2015 16 we were just starting to hear more about these conversations when you don't have the tools and the language to approach something how do you yeah how do you begin dealing with it yeah that's that's the thing yeah because i didn't have uh, you know an understanding or language of, of what i'm going through you know at one point i thought i was you know if, if i'm i don't feel like a woman that i must be a man you know like there's this 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 understanding that's very binary in that case mm-hmm. and i realized at one point that um after around my puberty because i tried so hard to distance myself from uh you know my femininity and my assigned gender at birth i adopted a, a boy persona in the internet and i tried to like um actually um act in the way that i thought i was yeah. but eventually it didn't work because you know i'm not a man no yeah 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 <laughs> It just it just clicked, you know, and that was the only other option if I'm not a woman, you know. So mm-hmm. that was the only resource that I had at the time, and I tried to make sure of that, and that didn't work out. So then I thought, you know, something might be wrong with me. But I think one of the best up in my journey that thrives over all of the other downs is that I can say this with certainty that I'm finally unequivocally content with myself that i'm capable to deal with great hell with shame with unlearning years of bigotry be mature enough to accept fundamental part of myself and understand myself enough to make sure that i survive the fact that i'm at peace with the conclusion of that lifelong struggle inducing question (laughs) means that it takes up so much less space of my energy and health and i genuinely have never been this at peace with myself you know i feel very much liberated and that's the greatest feeling yeah Um, and then in 2016 i i know about non-binary which is like 
huh. know, this this ah moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so it, you you were saying that 2016 was also yeah the first year that you also moved away from your home abroad. Yeah. yeah. Um, then I guess uh, it makes sense maybe to to ask you because I'm I'm going to assume, but please correct me if I'm wrong. That right, abroad yeah. was connected to becoming a student as well. Um, yeah. And an international student as such, being abroad, of course. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. So how how do you think being an international student, going through all of these experiences and this journey, um, has actually played into yeah into your experiences? Um, yeah, so um, I think firstly, you were just looking through the basics of the um, experience of international student life on, on its own, you know, like you're being relatively young, you, you are in a turbulent period of life, right? Because, you know, early adolescents are usually the, the, the period of time in which everything just, just kind of happens at the same time. And you're trying to become more sure of your identity and what you want in life. Um, and you are also in a place that you're not at all familiar. <laughs> and in my case, um, ten of thousands kilometers away from once you call home. And you know when this happens, and when you're surrounded by this, uh, you know, un very unfamiliarity, all the survival instinct just 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 started kicking in, and and, and uh, all the years of language lessons just just flashes before your <laughs> and you try to to scramble uh, barely comprehensible sentences enough to communicate your intention to this um, random stranger because you're a you're a lost kid in in Fishmark and you try to go back to your dorm from your school building. yeah so, <laughs> that's uh, yeah I think that was my second day of being in Groningen and I got lost in Fishmark is it <laughs> Yeah, honestly, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, I have to ask somebody to like, um, how do I go back to my dorm? And I, I have this calculia, so I, I get lost a lot, even in, in 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 familiar situations. So like that is already like, and I was yeah. seven. <laughs> I was 17 going Oh, wow, you were 17 when you moved here. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I was 17 going through 18. And I was just like, oh, my God, everything is so unfamiliar. And everyone <laughs> think that I'm a grown-up, but I'm a lost kid, bro. I'm uh, just dumb. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, like, on top of this... Um, age-appropriate confusions, you know, and uh, this fascination with the, with the world, the, the new environment that you are in, you also kind of uh, meet certain groups of people, right? And this might be the, the first time in your life that you see, for example, in my case, it's the first time in my life I see other non-binary people. It's the first time I see, you know, other openly queer people or people of different cultures so you are then after all of these interactions you are forced to challenge what you have learned up to this up to this point and subsequently including you know how you yourself fit into this world this new world that you are in um as for you know my other experience as international students so um i'm asian <laughs> so I do, you know, I do experience racism 
based on that and um, I'm Indonesian so uh, there were interactions that I've had with Dutch students um, that are not aware of of, uh, the Dutch colonial past which um, that is oddly enough very common I've heard that from many like many people who also come from like the Dutch Caribbean and that's a very common thing that they're like well I found out that they have no clue about their colonial past and I was like really yeah yeah and it's so weird like it's so weird how insensitive they can be sometimes and then i would you know walk down the street and you would have this like middle schoolers yelling hanky panky shanghai at me which is apparently a birthday song taught to children and it's very racist and i just you know it's just I, I'm, just, I'm just appalled of how clueless uh, the, the society can be sometimes, you know. Um, but yeah, that's my experience as, a, as an Asian person. And because of this experience, uh, in, including meeting uh, people, you know, of... Uh, people existing outside of the gender binary, and you, you, know, you meet other trans students. Um, at the time, I was raised in a world um, that understood gender as something that's either male or female, right? It's such an eye-opening experience to meet uh, other people, you know, other trans and, and queer, gender queer people in real life. And you just kind of, it's it's a different experience when you read about it in books or in the internet versus you if you meet them in, in real life, right? Like yeah. there was, I'm in psychology, so there was a chapter on gender and sexuality in one of my earliest courses, which was at a time I thought it's just, just like reading a long Tumblr post, you know, and then... <laughs> And looking back now, I, I realize why I have that attitude, which was like, I, I you know, I, I have a lot of internalized transphobia and queerphobia to unpack that I wasn't ready to do as a, as a lost kid in Fishmark, you know, yeah. just, just wanted to go back to their dorm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. That was, uh, that was my experience as a, as an international student, basically. <laughs> Yeah. All right. And that's just to get you started with. Wow. That's uh, honestly a handful, Uh, especially to go through as a 17 year old and have all of these like realizations, culture shocks. Uh, I mean, and when I say culture shock, I I, I don't mean it in in the honeymoon kind of way. The oh, oh, it was an ice bath. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Wow. Kind of literally, because I went from from a place that only has like two kinds of season, which is like dry and rainy season to um whatever the netherlands has you know (laughs) i like this description yeah yeah (laughs) yeah well okay so then speaking about student life um and kind of finding your way as a student in the netherlands in groningen um in the north of the netherlands Yeah, on top of everything, how have uh, how has well all of this um, impacted your academic career and yeah, moving through academia in general? Oh, um, oh this is gonna be a long one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it's also um, important to keep in mind uh, at at the moment that I only fully came out um, around the last year. So my study. Um, 
So obviously it's going to be very different than somebody who has been out, for example, uh, through three years and starting the same study as I am. But yeah. um, I'm answering um, this question from this point of view. Um, I guess because, you know, all of this um, new experience that I uh, that I had in 2016, you know, on top of the, being the last kid and uh, meeting new people for the first time that challenged my uh, my view, I was, you know, I was also struggling with my health um, at the beginning of my study in throughout the year. Um, and I wasn't exactly sure of why I was so miserable. I just cared about how to take care of it enough to just get by for a little longer so I can move on to other things. And um the thing with other things when you are in a university, it means that these other things um, always come after one another, you know, and after one another. So less than a quarter of your week is just not studying. And in my case, for example, I had um, I had an ECTS uh, tied to my residence permit because I'm a non-U student coming to study. So naturally, my um, my permit is under the reason of study. So that means um, I had to um, get around 45 ECTS um, in my first year to keep my residence permit and continue studying. So I just was on wow on survivor mode you know like i just i just wanted to keep going i wanted to numb myself i don't want to care about gender or how much i fall from the bike or or all weird weather and um, uh, the unseasoned food you know (laughs) (laughs) and um, at the same time because I was in psychology I was surrounded by a lot of um, very ambitious well-adjusted German students for the lack of better word so um, (laughs) and we are the majority of the students so they also kind of created this culture of uh being very ambitious and very competitive social circle and at the mm-hmm. same time I was, you know i was quite envious of how um quote-unquote normal they 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 seem to be you know they don't have to deal with all of the things that i was dealing with and on the other hand, when I look at that students, there is this, this you know, talk about the Jesus culture, which is like, if you get a six, then you'll, you're okay. You know, yeah. well, it was contrasting with my classmates that are like, I, I got a 7.5, so I have to take the reset because I was aiming for a nine. Yeah, which, that's true because psychology has like a lot of German students, right? Like I've heard yeah. even more so than, than Dutch or any other nationality. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because of, you know, because of the environment I was in and because I was in a full-on survivor mode because of the, uh, you know, permit that I was in, um, I just kind of kept going um, and kind of swept all of the other things that I was dealing with under the rug. And my body just kind of gave up before my mind could process what was happening because of this, um, I was extremely encouraged by this, uh, you know, perceived productivity of others and, you know, the real threat of failure because, you know, if I lost my CTS, then I would lose my residence permit, which I would lose my dorm and then I would be sent home. And then all of this uh, cycle of 
quote unquote failure. Um, yeah. And because of this, I uh, what I currently understand as uh, gender dysphoria, they kind of manifested this very deep depression and like eating disorder and this all of this general self hatred that I had because of not being able to fit in despite having a like a new clean slate because I thought I was miserable because of the environment that I was in and then I moved and then I was still miserable. So then I thought, you know, the problem was with, with me again, right? And because of um, all of these health effects, um, it just took me much longer to graduate with my bachelor's, you know, like I was behind uh, compared to all of my peers. I feel a lot of courses. I had to take resets multiple times. Um, I had to adjust how many courses I took per block. Like I would um, I would take one course per block or uh, I took some courses. Uh, like for example, if I take three courses per block and I at one point decided it was too much, I drop out of one. And if two courses is still too much, then I, I only do one course per block. Um, and you know, I lost a lot of opportunities, for example, because I need to adjust to this um, new level of energy that I have or, you know, the new lack of energy that, <laughs> that I have. Yeah. Uh, like if somebody offered like, hey, do you want to do this uh, research study or do you want to do, uh, you want to be uh, my research assistant that I can't really offer that because um, I have very limited energy. Um, I, I lost a lot of opportunities in that case. And um Sometimes Nestor, um, which is like the, uh, what do you call it, like a student portal for uh, students of University of Kronia, uh, they posted some jobs for like student assistantships and stuff. And um, the form only has female or male option for gender. <laughs> and um, that also discouraged me from applying um, a lot because... You know, and when you want to have some experience uh, as a student mentor or, or whatever, the last thing you need is, you know, having a mental breakdown from looking at the form because you're dealing yeah. with a crisis. Um, so that, yeah, that, that kind of discouraged me from actually applying to a lot of the stuff because there's no, you know, I, I, I didn't feel acknowledged in this case. Um <laughs> But um, I was also, you know, academically speaking, because of my situation, I was helped by a lot of very patient teachers. You know, I, I became pretty close to my study advisor. Um, I think he's retired now, but uh, <laughs> he helped me a lot. And, uh, and my te- thesis supervisor. So, um, yeah, shout out to my thesis supervisor. Hey. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I had a lot of help. I guess um, I um, all my friends have graduated before me and um, I wasn't really present in the last three years of my study because I was just so ashamed of being behind, you know, because then you would see I would be like 22 and this this kids are like 18, 19. <laughs> then I would have to explain why I was so late. So I just... Um, kind of not attend the lectures basically, which worked to my advantage during COVID times. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> um, that helped me um, try to study at my own pace, I guess. That's a, that's a takeaway from, from my academic experience. Um, 
in yeah. this case. Yeah. yeah, and as you were saying, like there's so much shame associated with uh, study delays for some reason. And yeah. there's just so many aspects that play into it. And um, I, it's it's honestly baffling that that we have such a shameful culture towards that, that, that it's so highly competitive, uh, especially Ooh. in international environments. As you said, like, yeah. the more Dutch environments are like, yeah, pass with the sticks. Yeah, it did so okay. well. But then these environments and that, like just have this additional pressure of having to be done yesterday, um, which is yeah. just not feasible when, as you're saying, you're dealing with so many different like health, mental health aspects. Everything yeah. on top of that is just not feasible. And as you said, you have this constant like um, in the back of your mind, even if it's not a conscious thing every day, you're like, ah, can I stay here another year? You know, if I don't make it yeah. to this amount yeah. of credits, which is just not something that any person in, in such a vulnerable position that age should have to go through, you know, to only think about survival mode constantly. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for sharing that with uh, with us. And uh, you already started speaking about some people that have uh, supported you throughout uh, all of these challenges and adversities. So on an individual level, what would you say are adequate, way, adequate ways in which teachers should uh, intervene in cases of homophobia or transphobia in class? Or, I mean, we can also think a bit more broadly, I'm saying in class, but even yeah. just in like a university related environment. Um, so, for example, the... Um Vanderbilt University has a pretty good guide on um, teaching beyond gender binary in university classrooms. Um, and they emphasize, the, the article emphasized that, you know, the teachers and mentors and lecturers and professors, you know, the, the, the people that do the teaching um, kind of have to set the tone of um, providing a safe space for vulnerable students in this case, right? So as for the Ruch itself, I can think of about two situations where this can be applied, um, where the, you know, the teacher kind of stepped in. In my program, there is usually two types of um classrooms um they usually have lectures and they usually have practicals the lectures usually have like 20 plus people in a big auditorium auditorium um and in practical the setting is usually more uh close you know there is only like i think about 10 students that have to interact together and um, the, they're usually not taught by lecturers, but they're taught by something called the student mentors so, because mm -hmm. they have to like, guide them on, on their uh, progress throughout the, throughout the course. And for example, in a lecture with a, depending on the course, um, there's usually a discussion around during lectures where um, any student can raise their hand and express their argument or their opinion about something. And it's also possible that another student would raise their hand to counter the argument of the previous students. Um, if for some reason, say, the discussion has uh, blatant transphobic or homophobic undertones, for example, if there is 
for example, if there, uh, if if it's a class about uh, social history or something, and there are discussions about feminism, and the counter arguer quoted uh, a book that's deeply transphobic, like irreversible damage by Abigail Schreer, I would expect the lecturer to actually step in by saying, you know, stating firmly that. This class welcomes every student and transphobia is not an opinion, it's a hate crime. <laughs> because it is, you know, it, it, it oh. influenced the, um, the legislations, it influenced the culture that we are in, it explains so many systematic discrimination against, uh, you know, non-binary and trans folks. Um, and yeah. to understand that university is usually the first uh, environment where uh, all of the students learn about these things for the first time, it's very important to provide that accurate information. I think it's it's really hard to talk uh, about um, specific experience of trans and non-binary students in a lecture hall. So I think the opportunity usually arises more if you are in a practical. And um, since there are usually less people and, you know, you, you often meet the same group every time. And I think it's, it's much easier for the teachers and student mentors to actually set the tone in this case. So, like, for for example, during introduction rounds, the mentor can say something like, "Hello, uh, my name is my name. I use this pronouns." Um, I, you know, they did, and then say their background of like when they study and stuff or something, and then the point the introduction to the students uh, subsequently. And um, say in this situation, for example, you have um, a non-binary student that says like uh, their name and I say them pronouns. And let's say that another student is being pretty stupid by, by you know, keep misgendering the non-binary student or say like, or during the introduction round, they, they use the very original joke of I use a tech helicopter pronounce. So um, I think it really depends on, on how, uh, you know, the, the, the personality of the teacher can actually deal with this uh, kind of situation. You can go as, as far as... <laughs> You know, say play along by saying like, "How nice of attack to include helicopter pronouns." We are in an inclusive <laughs> classroom here, and we're where we make sure trans students are safe from phobic bigots. So I'm so proud of helicopter for giving us the example of attack break. Right, <laughs> or, or you can be, you know, you can be as simple as saying like, "Actually, this this non-binary student used they," you know. Or like when the, every, every time the, uh, the, the, the the mocking students say uh, misgender them, uh, the teacher correct that you mean they, or just yeah. keep saying they, you know, yeah. uh, when when they're purposely misgendering uh, the, the the student. Um, <laughs> Because in this case, uh, you, you have to make sure that the environment stays safe for, you know, non-binary and trans students and, you know, perhaps ask to talk to them after class and discuss what a teacher can do uh, to help further make them comfortable in the class. Because you want to, you know, as a teacher, you want to, as a teacher, you want to encourage participation in class, right? Because, you know, it's a, it's a learning environment. So you 
are kind of responsible for creating a yeah. safe environment uh, to be in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's also uh, important to keep in mind that not a lot of uh, trans, non-binary, uh, queer students are out either to their, you know, either to their families or their environment. So. So when there is a request by the student, for example, you know, if, if they email the teachers and, and mentors to refer to them by their uh, actual gender or actual pronouns um, in the in, in paperwork, it's also important to keep in mind that it's not your information uh, to give without their consent. And it's also important to keep in mind that um, a lot of students are not out because of their safety because you know if, if if the situation is similar to mine where the family where their family is more conservative and not understanding um so always ask them first before passing on that information um to other staff for example if they wanted to change uh, their details in the school system for example um make sure not to you know out them uh, in front of the class, um, make sure to uh, to just, you know, build a trust with the students, you know, don't ask any questions that you wouldn't ask to non-trans, non-binary students as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Another example that is also from, you know, the Vanderbilt University Guide on Teaching Beyond the Binary, um, it, lecturers, for example, can start um, their first lecture uh, ever in the course by saying um, things like, you are all adults, as I am, and I expect you to treat each other with respect and dignity in my class, no matter how different they are from you. Um, and I think practically speaking, uh, I do know Ruh provides an active bystander training, but I seem to have <laughs> no access on it or to know what it what it's actually like. I just know that the resource is there. Um, but I think it sounds promising. I, I hope it is actually effective. Yeah, I really hope it's it's really effective because I think they uh, implemented that. Uh, <laughs> Only a couple months ago, after the you know the the the, the, the Me Too movement or, or so. Okay. Oh, so it's, okay. It's typically for uh, sexual harassment, I think, from what I understood from reading the um, the uh, uh, the description of the active bystander training. But it's also you know it's also the case for uh, discrimination for vulnerable students in this case. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think. Uh, Okay. Well, I mean, I hope that I think that's um, while we I can I can only hope that teachers uh, do intervene in situations that are being that students are being transphobic um, or homophobic. Of course, there's a component which is like the university also needs to provide certain certain things like as you mentioned this active bystander workshop um it needs to be made part of university policy and systems that teachers have access also to these resources yeah to be able to talk on these topics um i mean of course in the cases that they are not the transphobes or homophobes of course because that can also be the case which makes it all the more complicated and impossible yeah. Well, talking about this, um, 
do you are you aware of any resources and facilities where uh, LGBTQI plus students can go for support, mental, physical, safety wise, and of course, yeah, it's your you are a student at the Ruch, but you don't only have to mention this. Like any oh. other ones would be would are welcome. Like whatever you find suitable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I can only. Uh, speak for Ruch in, in this case um, well or, or some things that I also had in my experience is that like I think the basic answer anyone can give is usually study the Pfizer especially in cases um, like mine where the health part is affecting my academic performance and because I believe they're there to help create practical solutions like uh, how many courses you should take or which ones to take to actually ensure that you do get the CTS that you need. And um, if, if their cases are also similar like mine, in which the health, including, you know, gender dysphoria and other mental health and, you know, chronic fatigue stuff uh, affect every part of your study and not just structure-wise. Um, usually the study advisor can refer you to the student counselor and student service center um, to find out what can be done uh, because, uh, because they usually help arrange things related to study delay, um, especially if it's related to your residence permit. And they... Also, as far as I know, accept reports of inappropriate or discriminatory behavior within the university. In my faculty, there is also uh, a new LGBTQ expert center, as far as I know. And I think they're compiled um, of researchers and uh, people uh, that help uh, gather data or uh, I'm not really exactly sure what they do. Uh, at this moment because I only heard them from like little talks but I think I would I wouldn't know what they actually do like a few moments a few months from now and I do know for example my faculty which is um, the um, faculty of Bifurial and social sciences has a, a thing called inclusion that we are and social sciences and they, they have certain goals and I do believe they focus on inclusion on the uh, on the BSS faculty um, they are meant to like uh, take actions to promote inclusion on staff, uh, student curriculum and research level. Um, they are meant to collect qualitative and quantitative data on the representation of inclusion of minorities. Um, my faculty, for example, uh, didn't have gender neutral bathroom in 2016. And I think in 2019 or so, they, they now have a gender neutral bathroom, uh, which I think are a really good initiative. Oh, um, okay. They, I didn't know that the is starting uh, with this initiative. That is yeah. very, very nice. Yeah, I think it's. I, I think it's great because you know, a bathroom is a is a bathroom. <laughs> yeah, honestly, and it, it, I, my university where I'm studying currently, my master's program, and it's not in the Netherlands, by the way, for context. Um, yeah. I'm in Barcelona, and I think most of the toilets at this at the whole all of the faculties of the university are um, like not gendered. They're just bathrooms, you know, <laughs> bathroom yeah. is a bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. I think outside of the Ruch itself, um, a lot of websites and healthcare um, resources are in Dutch, so they're not necessarily accessible to international students. Um, but I do believe you can install a Google Translate plugin on your browser to uh, help you navigate the resources. 
Mm, yeah. uh, I know, for example, a website like trans, transfici.nl, um, they compile trans and non-binary related information, including resources of transgender friendly general practitioners. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, that's really good to know as, as a trans student. Um, yeah. And um, I think for students planning to medically transition in the Netherlands itself, I know at the moment the wait list for gender team is super long. <laughs> so it's important to uh, uh, build support circle and try to cultivate habits that benefit you more than it harms you in the long run. You know, like, uh, for example, I can have pretty severe depressive episodes. So when I feel that coming, um, instead of, you know, quote unquote, giving in and not eating and sleeping the whole day, I would do the opposite action of waking up at a, you know, waking up and going to sleep at the same time every day. Um, I would try to eat three times a day and try to take care of myself instead. Um, doesn't always work, but when it works, it's great. Um, <laughs> if you have access yeah. to therapy, um, attend it. Um, there's a social worker organizations in Groningen, like Humanitas or Extanoa, in which uh, they usually have volunteers um, that can uh, listen to you or help you in your daily chores if you ever get to that point. And I know uh, not exactly Ruf, but I do know there were student initiatives for mental health, like all years. It was, I think, created during um, in the first few months of COVID-19 uh, <laughs> happenings. And it's, it's meant to provide a listening ear. So they're, uh, they're not meant to be a replacement for psychological treatment. But, it, it, it you know, talking does help in this case. Yeah. When you don't have access to a therapy or, you know, proper... Yeah, would, would you describe it maybe as a bit of like a support circle? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's oh. a part of that support circle, I would, I would say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another one that actually also and ironically helps me the most is like joining a support group specific to certain uh, disorders slash neurodivergent condition from, you know, like certain subreddits like r slash ADHD, for example, or uh, 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 a group that talks about um, independent uh, therapy. Um, for example, I'm in a dialectical behavioral therapy support group, and I know how to read and use the therapy book because of this uh, environment. And you know, it's it's good to understand that there are people um, going through the same thing, and that I do have the background knowledge to actually do this because you know I study psychology, so I I know how to. I know what to do and uh, how to read therapy books and how to actually uh, apply the knowledge to myself. But I just wish that it is more accessible for a lot of people. And in this case, I have to seek out online groups because it's not accessible for me, for example, because a lot of therapy are done in Dutch. I, I, you know, I don't speak enough Dutch to have therapy. Yeah, yeah. So um, I have to like uh, learn to uh, uh, self-medicate myself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I think it's important to you know circling back to creating that that uh, um, having like a circle of support because this is also one of them. You know, 
you do what you can to survive basically yeah yeah well thank you Hawun, so much for providing all these uh very important insights and for those of you who maybe didn't note them down yet don't worry because um together with this podcast we're also publishing a blog post which is meant to uh serve as some sort of uh guide or uh insights into these resources that we've mentioned so don't worry uh in it is linked in the description so you can directly access all of these resources that we've mentioned and if you're listening and you think you also have an interesting resource to add please send it to us and we will make sure to look into it and add it to our list of resources but without spending too much time talking about that and i do want to ask you one final question before we round off this episode and that is again in regards to higher education institutions in general um how do you think higher education institutions in the Netherlands um, should deal with discrimination against LGBTQI plus students? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I think um, it should be dealt uh, the, the same way it is trying to deal with other forms of discrimination, you know, firmly to be dealt firmly to the perpetrator without actually losing the focus on bringing safety to the discrimination victim, for example. Um, uh, Ruch, for example, has a zero tolerance policy according to their diversity and inclusion statement. But in practice, as far as I know, this relies on whether uh, there is someone that reported a case for them. And in my opinion, higher education should not wait until somebody reports something to realize that something is wrong, right? The fact that trans and non-binary people are systematically at a disadvantage is is wrong. You know, it shouldn't just be the, the, the flying of pride flag every June or, you know, it, it should be actively creating a safe environment for uh, vulnerable students. And this means that the, the staff has knowledge and knows how to navigate certain sensitivities uh, around gender diversity and sexual orientation diversity and call out unwanted behavior when it happens, you know. And higher education, as far as I know, also relies on a culture created by the workers and authorities within the institution itself you know so um yes i believe everyone is aware that trans and you know non-binary student exist um but do they actually know how to communicate with them you know do you uh still cultivate cis heteronormativity you know do they check their assumptions about which gender this person were born as you know when you listen to my voice do you think about oh this is obviously a girl or this is obviously a boy, you know, do you, do you still think like that? Um, do you get distracted by your, um, do you get distracted by somebody's uh, perceived discrepancy between uh, their presentation and who they say they are? You know, do you, do you scoff when you read complaints from gender non-conforming students asking to only be addressed by a name? That is not their legal name because, you know, that's also a thing, right? When you are, um, when you are a trans and non-binary student, sometimes you use a different name and, you know, gender identity than the ones being written in their legal documents, you know, and are you catering to that? Are you... Um, creating uh, a, you know, a safe enough space for 
a lot a lot of students because like if you care about vulnerable students or you know if you for example say um uh, if you do little things such as replacing hello ladies and gentlemen with hello everyone that already includes also everyone it's not erasing anything that has happened it just you know, being aware with uh, students that are more at a disadvantage and is, is trans and non-binary students, right? And when you, for example, uh, misgender someone or use the wrong pronouns, do you um, do you apologize profusely or do you just correct yourself and move on? Because I think, in my opinion, it should be the latter one because it shouldn't be up to trans and non-binary student to comfort yourself um, for making a mistake that affects them more, you know, using the wrong pronouns is kind of like accidentally stepping on someone's toes. Um, You apologize for stepping on their toes. It still hurt. But you move on and you are aware that their, their toes are over there. Yeah. You, know, you don't you don't just say I'm sorry I didn't see your toes it's it's hidden somewhere out of sight I'm so sorry that it's I feel so so bad for not looking at your toes I swear I I saw your toes you know <laughs> Yeah 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 So um yeah so it, it you know it starts with someone it starts with a group of people that um knows how to make policies within the, the university itself and higher education you know like i think it's also important when there is like a, a meeting about you know diversity of inclusion or when there is a, a talk about policies regarding vulnerable students i think it's it's important to have like a you know representative group of students uh, that whose policy affects the most to share their opinion and actually give um, to share their opinion and actually give certain suggestions because you know to to make sure that the policymakers or you know people that created the, the the culture itself within the higher education are working to their advantage and not because you know you, you want to be inclusive because of some marketing situation yeah 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 <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah i think those are uh, yeah are the main things yeah those are yeah very important questions and, and notions for um people who are involved with students uh, lives at university and especially the ones who are in decision-making positions yeah because um yeah you're in the end like playing with students well-being and if you're already making the statement that your university cares about diversity and inclusion then really stand behind it and I I think a lot of institutions do want to just be done with it. Can we just do this little research, have this policy and be done with it? But I think there's just so much more to it. And um, the goal shouldn't be to be done with it. The goal should be to start opening all these doors and understand that... 
we are all learning how to communicate with each other and we haven't done that in an inclusive yeah. way for a very long time and yeah. we're just starting to do that adequately and yeah. it's not like a there's no end goal with this the end goal is for people to feel like okay even though definitely it's not ideal we're going somewhere and there's an actual commitment it's not just oh the pride flag during june just means we accept yeah. the lgbt's and uh they know that we accept them therefore yeah. it's, that's it yeah there was there was some jokes about like um during by visibility day or like trans uh, visibility day like outside of those days we just disappear into the realm Ooh. yeah it's oh, just on those yeah, days yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> But yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so so much for joining me in this episode and thank you so much for um yeah, just building this uh, list of resources and thank um, you so much for having me in this in this episode. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. 